0: Just a little bit of kind of understanding of what's going on and then we'll we'll dive into the text, but you can go ahead and open to Romans chapter 12. What we've tried to do over, uh, what I've tried to do over the last few weeks as we've been looking through Romans is to give you a balance between each sermon each week um, on what God has done for us and then uh, what is our responsibility in that. So if you looked at the very first week, Romans chapters 1 through 5, <clears throat> we saw the gospel, uh, distinctions of it, who needs it, and what God has done for us in the gospel, the history of it, and what it brings for us. Really, that's just kind of news about God and what he's done. And then this past, the week after that, we looked at Romans 6. When we looked at Romans 6, we saw we saw six. We saw our responsibility, after we've come to know Christ, our responsibility as a Christian, how to live, and we saw primarily it's in the mind, but we kind of focused in on ourselves um, and what we're supposed to do. And as we did that, I, I said... Hey, it's important that we understand all the things that you're supposed to do. They've all found their find their foundations in Christ and what He's done for us first, before we can talk about what we're supposed to do. Last week, we looked at the end of chapter of uh, uh, Romans eight, and we saw God's love for us. Um, there wasn't really anything that you had to apply at that particular week. It wasn't like, therefore, here's five things that you need to go do. We just found ourselves, hopefully, um, looking at God's love and what he's done for us in Christ and kind of in awe, looked at the five unanswerable kind of questions regarding Christ's love and saw that nothing separates us from him. No real list of application. Now, on this particular Sunday, uh, as we look at Romans 12, we're starting at verse 9. You can see, I mean, this is a very, very practical list of things to do. You can see, uh, starting at verse 9, there's just a list of do this, do this, don't do this, let this be in your life, etc. And again, I want to make sure we strike that balance because uh, if I don't preface this with the gospel, then it's going to feel like a how-to or... 8 to 10 to 12 or to 11 steps of making yourself a better you. Just do this list and then you're all of a sudden a better you. Um, and I want to do everything I can to not just give you a list and you just, with all your moral power, seek to do this list and feel like I'm a good person because I do, I do these things. So um, we're going to preface the list by gospel, which is absolutely imperative so that we know that it's because of the gospel and what Christ has done for us that we get to live a life that looks like these things, not that you've got to do this list in order to be a good person. So um, we're going to do that, but let me pray first and then we'll, we'll jump into Romans chapter 12. It says, Mark's of a true Christian. I have it as vi- visible demonstrations of love. Uh, and also, I should say this, um, we're not going to take, I don't have anything on the screen, so there won't be any sermon notes for you to take. Um, I mean, you may still write them down, but I don't have anything on the screen, and that's because I've been reading some things on sermons, and what they are, and what they're not, and they're not lectures, and so I don't want you to ever feel like, sermons are God speaking to you, not me, because this is his word, God speaking to you, and so I'm trying to, trying new things that I don't want you preoccupied with making sure you're writing down the next thing, and then like treating it like a lecture and not hearing from God and then you're missing hearing from God. So I want you to just hear from the Lord the entire time and just listen. Uh, You don't need to feel compelled to write, Um, although I'm not going to stop you from writing things. I'll try to, anyway, yeah, let me pray. God, thank you for, uh, thank you for your love and your mercy that you've given to us. I pray for today as we look at this list of things that um, we can have present in our lives uh, or that we should have present in our lives as Christians. These are distinguishing or visible demonstrations of a heart that's been transformed by the agape love of God. I pray that as we look at these things, God, that we would um, not be overwhelmed and that we certainly wouldn't think that we have to get busy on doing these things or else we're a terrible person, but instead... Realize because of Christ's work on the cross, these things have been given to us and that we are able to carry out these things because of the Holy Spirit in us. I pray, God, that you would help me uh, as we look at these things, teach in a clear way, but also, God, in a way that glorifies Christ and helps, him, or helps us all see that lists of things are not necessarily the point, but Jesus is the point. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, you probably heard me say this quite often, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is like a, a diamond. It's not just something that unbelievers here need to hear in order to get saved, but with the absolute necessity that an unbeliever needs to hear in order to get saved, the Christian needs to hear the gospel just as much as the, un, as the unbeliever in order to um, remind themselves continually that it's not about your performance, but what Christ has already done, and so it's like a diamond. And so there's, there's different beautiful kind of aspects that you can, when you look at a diamond, see. And it's the same thing with the gospel. We can turn the gospel. We can let the justice of God in the gospel be displayed. Or we can turn the gospel. We can see uh, the mercies of God. Today, we're going to look at the love of God. So we're turning the diamond. And as you see the beautiful gospel, we're just going to focus in on, and that's my job is every 52 times a year to give you 52 different ways to see and understand the gospel as a believer and how that affects your everyday life. Today, we're going to look at the love of God because that's what Paul does. If you look at Romans chapter 12, verse 9, first, uh, well, in English, four words. uh, In Greek, it's just two. It says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. So he starts out with agape as the foundation. Love. Now, so what we're going to do is before we get into the list, we're going to look at the love of God for us and realize that we need to see and understand the love of God for us in the gospel. And that's how we're going to actually live out these, these admonitions or visible demonstrations of love. And, and what love looks like uh, in us towards other people. So let's flip over just, I don't know, three pages to the left. Uh, four pages to the left of Romans chapter 5 verse 8 where God's going to tell us how he demonstrates his love towards us. Or actually, in ESV, it shows. Sometimes I quote KJV from my early childhood. So in Romans chapter 5, we'll start at 6. For while we were still weak at the right time. So here he says weak. uh, Other places you'll see dead. Don't think of yourself as weak as like, oh, I still had one little one little last muscle that I could pull myself up and do something for myself, and then God, but God still helped me. Think of yourself as absolutely incapable. So while you were still weak at the right time, you were an enemy of Jesus, you couldn't stand Jesus, you weren't interested in Jesus, you had nothing to do with Jesus, nothing and you wanted to know Jesus. You were actually not just indifferent, but completely the opposite, an enemy. You, 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 as it says in Ephesians 2, chapter 1 through 3, you were following the prince of the power of the air. You were literally following Satan before Jesus. And while we were that rebellious against him, he said, I'm going to go die for them. That's who I want. I want my enemies. I want my enemies to be my friends. So I'm going to go for the ungodly and die for them in their place. That's, that's what's being pictured. But why would he do that? Just because he wants submissive servants. He wants people that he's kind of put under his kind of like, hey, you owe me. No, look at this. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. No one would, barely anybody would actually die for a righteous person, but we were unrighteous. So think about who would die for unrighteous people. No one. And then he says, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, this agape love for us, this unbelievable love for us, in that while we were still sinners, enemies, weak, wanted nothing to do, he demonstrated his love for us that Christ came and died for us. So you're looking at the gospel and you're seeing this amazing demonstration of love that God would make for you, that you wanted nothing and I wanted nothing to do with him and he still came and died for you so that you could be saved. And then he said he died, God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, not still clean or getting to be better or becoming a better person, Christ died for. Since therefore we have now been justified or now been declared innocent because of his death by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Here it is. Here's this description of enemy. For while we were, where we're enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we wanted nothing, God brought us back just by his sheer love for us. He did it. So much now, much more, now that we're reconciled, we'll be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So that's a demonstration of God's love for unbelievers. And then we see in Romans 8, the demonstration, the continual demonstration of God's love for people who are believers, starting at verse 35 in Romans chapter 8. We see, what shall, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, and then he gives this big list of things. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we have this Romans 5, Romans 8, big demonstration of love that God has given to us in the gospel from through Christ of his love for us. Now, based on that, this amazing love, we pull over to Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9. So we can't just... Zoom in on Romans 12 verses 9 through 16 and say, oh, a list of stuff I got to do and just kind of disregard the theological foundations that's been poured for us in Romans chapter 1 through 11 regarding the love of God. So based on all this foundational love that he has for us, he looks at us and he says, with that same agape love I have for you, let it flow through you towards other people. And he says here in verse 9, let love be genuine. So this is is the foundation of, of all the things that he's going to tell us to do. Now, uh, we have this let love in the Greek. There's no verb here. Um, literally, it's, it's kind of like a title. Unhypocritical love. That's what it says. Unhip, unhypocritical love. There's no verb in it. And then what follows are kind of rifle shots of participle clauses that follow to explain what unhypocritical love looks like. And he just continually sends these, these things over and over and over about what unhypocritical love looks like. So here we have let love be genuine um, but it's actually unhypocritical love and this is what it looks like. As a matter of fact um, this is just to get you on the if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians and some of the New Testament letters the, the form here of Romans chapter 12 is very similar to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. You know 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. It's been often called the love chapter. So in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll see language that's like used in verses 4 where it talks about the members and how ne- necessary the members are of being a part of the body. You'll also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 a list of gifts, which you see right here in Romans. And then after that in 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. Same similar kind of form here in Romans 9. Membership is necessary. Because you're a member of a body in Romans uh, 12, 4. Then you get this list in verses 6 through 8. And then he, foundation, kind of agape with us, with the love. Now, you'll see in verse 10, it says love. Those are two different loves. One's agape, one's phileo. We'll talk about that. So we're letting verse 9 be our foundation. And it's um, imploring us that God has loved us, as it says in Romans 5:8, Romans 8, 35, and 39, and even some other places. Um, and he wants us now to love like he does, um, to, towards other people. So verse nine says, let love be genuine or unhypocritical love. Maybe that's the title um, instead of marks of a true Christian, isn't? You can, if you want, you can just scratch through marks of a true Christian in your ESV and write unhypocritical love, dot, dot, dot. And it looks like these things. So that's, that's how we're going to look at it. Unhypocritical love causes you to be these things. Look at verse, uh, the second part of nine abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The two verbs, abhor and hold fast, are like polar opposites, and they're very, very strong verbs. They're they're not at all painting any level of indifference. They're, They're very, very strong verbs that are being used. So abhor, hate exceedingly, have a deep loathing for, like Imagine something that you just can't stand. Multiply that by billions. Have a deep, be horrified by, is what it's telling you. Abhor what is evil. And then as equally opposite as you can get, it says, hold fast. So this hold fast is the same language that you would hear when talking about a husband and wife cleaving or holding fast, but not just, you know, holding hands, but in the most intimate sense that a husband and wife, when they come together, he says, with that depth of love that's being brought together in the marital union, hold fast to what is good. So you can see these two verbs are very strong verbs. And the only way that you're going to live a life that says, I'm going to all things that are evil, not not people, not people, all things that are evil, I'm going to have a deep loathing and be horrified by. And all things that are good, I'm going to have a deep love for. The only way that you can live that way is to be very, very discerning as a Christian. So unhypocritical love causes you to be, first one right there in verse nine, be discerning. Unhypocritical love causes you, causes you to be discerning with how you live your life. Luther, Martin Luther, as he looks at this particular verse says, Christians will never ever be able to do abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good perfectly. Yet, we're still told by God to pursue it anyway. So, even though you'll never be able to do it perfectly, it's not like, well, I can't ever do it, so who cares? No, you're you're to pursue it with as much passion as you can. Love causes you, the unhypocritical love that you should have causes you to be the kind of person that where there's evil things, you have a, You're horrified, have a deep loathing of these things. It causes you to hate these things. You abhor what is evil. Now, don't get confused because verse 17, make sure you look at verse 17 where it says, um, repay no one evil for evil. So just because there is evil that is maybe done to you, you don't repay evil for it. You just have an exceedingly deep loathing of the evil thing. But you don't return evil for it. Um, One commentator said it this way: I can have a deep love for a person and yet still hate the thing that's in them. How can I love and hate them? Here's the example. He said, "I, my son, I, I love my son so much, and because I love my son so much, if he were to be a liar or an adulterer, I would." hate that thing to the same level that I love my son. So as much as I hate him, it's proper then for me to hate that thing in him. And he says, as a matter of fact, um, the more I love him, the more you would see me hate that thing. As, and he goes on and says, if I were indifferent to that thing in him, then that means that my love for him is actually being lowered. So it's, it's very understandable that we can say we're supposed to love or hold fast to what is good, but abhor And and find repulsive those things that are evil. And in the same way as we abhor what's evil, we never pay evil for evil, love should cause us, sincere, unhypocritical love should cause us to go for all good things. We must cling to them or fasten ourselves to them like with glue to all the good things. Now, I want to make sure I'm being careful here. When we're saying that, I'm not saying that you're pursuing good things as an end and of themselves, just to make you feel like you're doing good things. Instead, it's all rooted in the gospel because God has given us Christ and it demonstrated his love to us. Now that agape love flows through us and we don't have to... Uh, cling to good things. We get to cling to these good things and we're doing it because we want to give glory back to God and we get to live a life that shows that we want to be discerning where those things that are evil, we detest those things and those things that are good, we hold fast. So here's the question. What abhorrent things, evil things, are you just kind of okay with in your life? Are there things in your life that you know that you should, find, um, you should find a deep distaste. You should be horrified that they're in your life, but you're just not. Either you're indifferent or you indulge. And on the flip side, what good things should you be clinging to more, holding fast to, fastening yourself to them like glue? Not that they're Jesus. They're not Jesus. But God has created good things that we would hold fast to those things for his glory. So, Unhypocritical love causes you to be discerning. The next one, uh, unhypocritical love causes you in verse 10, you can see this. Uh, it's, not, it's not as apparent in English, but it's 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 in the Greek a whole lot more apparent because I said this love that's being used is not agape, but it's the phileo love, the brotherly love. So you can read verse ten as brotherly love one another with brotherly affection. So he's he's using this familial language, family language twice in the verse because he's wanting us to, he's wanting to drive home the idea, especially in this first century where um, you have your immediate family, but because of persecution, a lot of times you're driven away from your immediate family uh, and you're surrounded by other Christians and the only family you have now is is other Christians. And so he's trying to... Sorry, he's trying to drive home into, the, into their mind that they're supposed to think of the church also as their immediate family. That Christ has bound them together in fellowship now um, with a heartfelt, consistent concern for each other. That's being driven home to us in this verse 10 by using brotherly or familial love twice. So here's what the second thing is. Unhypocritical love... Causes you to be consistently concerned. When we see literally this text is brotherly love one another into brotherly affection, this means that we should have a heartfelt, consistent concern for each other. I want to make sure you understand, I have chosen those two words with, with great care consistently concerned. Not conveniently concerned, but consistently concerned. This means, I I don't think that we at Remedy would ever just choose not to be with people. I think that what happens, and I think there's a lot of room for us to improve at this, that we're not consistently concerned, not because we detest each other, but because we don't have any time. We've busied ourselves so much that we have no margin. We just don't leave blank spaces in our schedules so that whenever a need arises, we actually have a blank space to fill it with other people's. T- we, we want to fill our schedules so much with stuff that we love to do that when a need arises with someone, we can't be consistently concerned. We can be conveniently concerned because our schedule doesn't allow it. And so the application is leave, stop being so busy. <laughs> and leave blank spaces in your life so that when something happens, you are consistently there. I saw it even this week, this Thursday night, uh, with one of our members got hurt uh, Thursday night. He got uh, playing frisbee, hit his head, um, had short-term memory loss, and <clears throat> Joel took him to the hospital, stayed for his consistent amount of time. His community group leader came, Chris, who also stayed uh, almost until 1 a.m. This is taking a concern to be consistently concerned with someone in, in their time of need. Now, if they had filled their schedules up with too many things, then they, couldn't have, they would have just been conveniently concerned. Maybe I can shoot a text to you, but you're not going to get any time for hours on end at the ER. I think the application for us is this. And I don't think we do this on purpose. I just think that we accidentally fill our schedules up too much and we don't leave margin so that when people need things, we can actually make time for them. So we need to be as consistently concerned for people. And not just consistent, but concerned. Not consistently intrigued. Not consistently like, everything okay? Yeah, all right, whatever. But concerned. Deeply caring about what's going on. That's why Paul uses family language. I mean, you wouldn't be inconsistently kind of intrigued of your wife's needs, I would hope, or your husband's or your children's. And so he uses family language that you would feel that. If something, anything happens to my kids, I can't think, I can't do anything else. Or my wife. That's all I want to know is what's going on. It's the same idea here. So unhypocritical love is consistently concerned with their family. And if you're, if this is your church, this is your community, this is your family. And you should, unhypocritical love means that you're you're always there consistently. I mean, I know you have other things sometimes, but on the whole, you're there. Now, if you look at the rest of verse 10, it says to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is This is really straightforward. So unhypocritical love is honoring towards people. Now, this doesn't mean that maybe what you think it means. It doesn't just mean as you see him, you're like, oh, let me tell you how awesome you are. Let me give you five compliments. Um, uh, (laughs) Instead, think of more Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, where it's talking about Jesus in the incarnation and it says, in humility, that we're to count others as more significant than ourselves. So, the way I think that we can honor this particular verse, unhypocritical love means that we're honoring. It means that In humility, we count others as more significant than myself. Honor means that we count others as more valuable than I count myself, more precious than I count myself. It means that, Keller says, it means that we listen to the other person. We're to be most aware of his or her hopes, his or her joys, their needs, their fears. We're to be considerate of them. In addition, when Christians see other Christians, they see not just the image of the creator, but Christ himself in residence. So, honoring means that we literally count them as more significant than ourselves. Think about that now. How often are you considering others more important than yourselves? Not equally, or maybe just a touch less, but more important, more significant, more precious. This, is, this means unhypocritical love. You're not going to be a hypocrite. You're going to be sincere with your love, this agape love flowing through you. You're going to honor each other. And notice, if you will, with me at verse 10, that has, it starts with, it doesn't just say show honor. It actually says outdo one another in showing honor. So there's a competitive nature to this that you have with someone. So much so that there's you are actually competing against them to count them and show them as more valuable and precious and more significant than yourself and vice versa. You're literally having some kind of competition with them to show more honor to them on a continual, so it's not like you're, you're walking up the door like, no, you go in, no, you go in, and we just stay in here for 30 minutes because none of us will go in. I got to show you more honor so you walk in. Instead, I mean, that's just such a kind of a basic base way to describe this. Instead, it's, in the deep recesses of your, of your day, of your life, as you're walking through life, how can I day to day with the people that God's put in me unhypocritically show that I'm going to count my community as more significant than myself? I think we could bounce right back up to that, that one we just did, which is, well, one way is I can make sure I have time for them, that I'm actually consistently concerned for them. That's one way I can honor them. The one way I can actually count them as more significant is that I would actually give them at least an equal amount of time that I would give my own self or whatever you're able to do in your schedule rather than just filling up all the things with just yourself. So unhypocritical love shows honor. Verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Interesting here he's going to use the, the phrase slothful in zeal. This is this is kind of the highest level of laziness. You know, when you call somebody lazy, it's one thing. You call them a sloth. That's a whole different level, you know. Um, no one's ever called me that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't enjoy it. Uh, so the opposite of that is, if we're talking about un- uh, hypocritical love, what would that look like? Stott looking at this verse, John Stott, he says, usually religious enthusiasm is, is often despised as fanatical. And fanatical is usually a word we use that's bad. You're a fanatic. Like, so you're crazy. You're, you're insane. But I just want to ask the question, why? Why would that word be a negative term? If we're talking about Jesus, if we're talking about our love for Christ, I don't want to be anything else but a fanatic for Jesus. It seems like anything other than that means I'm just kind of half-hearted, not interested, mediocre, you know, lukewarm about him. And so here, he's telling us that we need to be, don't be slothful or lazy in my zeal. This is a direct command given by Paul against being lazy in regard to doing the Lord's work. Um, But I want you to notice the encouraging way he writes it. He doesn't just say, don't be lazy. But instead, he phrases it by saying, don't be lazy in your zeal, and you'll, you'll see, it says, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. That spirit's got a little three, I'm guessing a three right there. And if you look at the bottom, it says at the bottom that goes going to say fervent in the spirit, capital S. And you're like, what is it? Is it lowercase or capital? I'm going to say it's capital. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I think clearly it's talking about the Pneuma, Holy Spirit here. And so we can read this as, don't be lazy in your zeal to the Lord, but be fervent in the Holy Spirit adding that while you're doing that, reminding that serve the Lord, that all of the work that you're doing is the Lord's work. So now we're reading in a much different... He doesn't say, don't be lazy. That's just kind of a base level admonition. But instead he says, in regard to the way you're going to serve the Lord, um, be this is maybe the literal way to read it. Be set on fire by the Holy Spirit and boil up in doing your good works by the power of the Holy Spirit, by doing your good works and serving the Lord. That's, that's the way. So he's commanding an emotion. He's commanding that we're not supposed to be emotionless, but we're supposed to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit and boil over, not in lethargy, but instead in our living for God. So that's, it's commanding us then. Unhypocritical love means that we are passionate about good works. We're passionate about good works. This is literally an expression of feeling. It's not just, I I like good works to happen, but it's also talking about what's going on in us as those good works are happening. So he's telling us, don't be a deadpan, emotionless, lifeless, expressionless um, kind of person that's unfeeling, just, good works can happen, whatever. But instead, like your Christian walk isn't some kind of, poker game where you're what's my next good work going to be no one knows no one can read my face instead like it's you're expressionless i mean you're expression filled you're feeling you're living a zealous life that's life of feeling as you're doing the good works and you're doing it all by the power of the capital s spirit as you're serving the lord on hypocritical love lives a life of passionate good works Passionate good works. Yes, it sounds like God's commanding a feeling. That's that's weird, right? How's He commanding a feeling? But don't just shy away from and say, "How do I how do I obey feeling a certain thing?" Because He certainly seems to be commanding a feeling. He even's going to do it later. I'm going to do it twice in this text. So, um, unhypocritical love is passionate to do God's God's will and good works. Go to verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Well, first, let's take that first phrase because I want to make sure we don't just blow by rejoicing in hope and just like, okay, rejoicing in hope and keep going. Because this is, this is quite interesting. Luther points out something like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's interesting. Rejoice in hope. Luther points out that we normally rejoice in what we've already seen and already experienced. He's telling us to rejoice in what we've not yet seen and what we've not yet experienced and hope to. And rejoice in that. And then he says, which makes much more sense of what Paul follows after that. How am I supposed to do that? Rejoice in things that are, I'm hoping happen. Well, Your life is not going to be filled with all the things you hope to happen. That's why he says, rejoice in hope. And then, therefore, you have to be patient or endure in tribulation. So I'm hoping that Christ's will will happen. But when it doesn't, I have to be enduring and patient in the tribulation. How am I supposed to get through that? Last phrase, constant in prayer. Prayer is the fuel that gives you the endurance to continue to rejoice in the hope of doing the Lord's will. Um, One one commentator says, these admonitions go together in this verse because hope, endurance, and prayer are always partners together. The only way to rejoice in things we haven't seen is to continue to endure or be patient in tribulation. The only way to endure, really, is not just white-knuckling it and bearing down and showing how hard you can strive to do things, but instead being constant in prayer. Like, without prayer, you won't endure. So, unhypocritical love is enduring. It's enduring. Unhypocritical love demonstrated for others is enduring. We must keep hope and be patient in all kinds of things whenever we are going through life. And all this must be addressed by prayer. How do we take that and, and uh, apply it to Christian love then? What does this particular verse, how does it relate to Christian love or unhypocritical love? Um, Tim Keller says this. He says, perhaps Paul is meant that, that we're supposed to be models of our, to our Christian brothers whenever we're going through difficulties. Whenever we're hoping, rejoicing in hope, and then we have to be patient in the tribulation through that hope that we're having, therefore it calls us to be constant in prayer. When the outside world is looking on, or even Christian brothers and sisters that that need to see this, when you're modeling it to them, he says, perhaps Paul meant that we're supposed to be models to our fellow brothers and sisters when we're going through difficulties. And he says, but it may be that we are to meet the troubles of Christian relationships with patience and prayer. To be deeply involved in people's lives is hard work. So as you're modeling this, you have to invest yourself in their lives in order for them to get to know you and model this with them. And as you're, this is, if you've done any level of ministry, I experience this all the time as a, as a pastor, and I think this is why most pastors drop out of ministry, is as you invest your lives in people's lives and you're, you're sowing seeds with them and you're praying with them and you're investing, you're giving them advice and et cetera, et cetera, and then they just w- try to decide, oh, I'm not going to do what you say anyway. Jesus in the end, doesn't seem that important to me. I'm going to go my way and just do what I want anyway. Like, that can happen to you enough that your heart can just get broken. You're like, forget this. I'm quitting ministry. I'm going to go cut grass. I can put on headphones, never talk to somebody, and I can get something done every day. Like, I can cut this grass, and I actually finish something. Like, you never get to finish anything in ministry. And so, I may have thought that through too much. Anyway, so, um, like, I know too many guys that, that go through that. And so, Keller, as he's writing this, quotes C.S. Lewis in regard to giving your heart over and, and, and to love. Now, I'm not talking about romantic love here. Don't take this C.S. Lewis and apply it to your boyfriend, all right, or your girlfriend. He's talking about ministry. This is what he says, because you're going to hear it and you're be like, oh, that's so good for my girlfriend or boyfriend. That's not it. He says, <laughs> there, this is in his book, Four Loves. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable, Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. Now, I know that's true in your romantic loves. I know that's true, but let's, let's try to keep it in the context of ministry. If you want to make sure of keeping your heart intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully. Who would want to do that anyway? So um, Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. Put that But in that casket where it's safe and dark and motionless and airless, your heart will still change. It won't be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to the tragedy of your heart being broken, or at least the risk of tragedy of your heart being broken, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. So you can hide your heart and keep it so that no one breaks it. But then it becomes unbreakable. It becomes irredeemable, impenetrable. And then that only keeps you safe for hell. So ministry means that you will endure. Though these people are going to break my heart, I'm going to model how I go through tribulations anyway. Unhypocritical love endures in tribulations i'm 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 rejoicing in my hope i want it to happen and i have to pray that the lord but i'm going to give my heart over to people i'm going to live with them and though they may break my heart i mean christ is my all in all not not things that happen and because of that i'm going to continue to endure so unhypocritical love endures with people it's patient through tribulations next one if you keep going in this verse 13 Contribute to the needs of the saints. I mean, this is really straightforward. I won't have to unpack this very much for us at all. Now, remember, uh, just for context, it is saying to the saints. So it is saying to people that are Christians. But you can, of course, apply this to unbelievers. Uh, So unhypocritical love is generous. Unhypocritical love is generous. I mean, the biggest expression of this, obviously, is Jesus Christ himself on the cross for us. This phrase actually has the the familiar Greek word you've probably heard if you've been in Christianity for a long time, koinonia. This phrase is, which is fellowship. But Paul isn't telling us here to fellowship with one another. Instead, he uses that phrase and said that we're supposed to fellowship with the needs of saints or participate in the needs of saints. So whenever Christians, ah, parentheses, or non-Christians, not yet Christians, whatever nomenclature you like, Whenever people have needs, you get down in their level and you participate in that with them by being generous. You take what's yours and you meet their needs with your own money, with your own possessions. Unhypocritical love means that you are compelled by this agape love that's been shown to you to share your possessions with other people that are more needy than you. Acts, this is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. In the very early church, this is a, for lack of a better term, a, a socialistic Christian society. They were the outcasts of society. They had to have all things in common anyway. But this is what it looked like. Whenever they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking bread and prayers, all came upon all the souls there. And God was doing many wonders and signs. All, a lot of things were being done through the apostles. And everyone who believed i.e. the saints, as we see in Romans 12, this is what it says, and all who believe were together and had all things in common. There's a group of people and they don't have 12 lawnmowers. They have one lawnmower. I didn't know they didn't have lawnmowers back then, but just use this illustration with me. So, you know, John 1 needs a lawnmower. He's going to come over here and he's going to get it. And then it's just the groups. And then John 2. And if somebody breaks it, we're all going to contribute. There's, there's one mixer. There's one sweep. There's one broom. There's one car. There's whatever you want to say. And I know that we don't have that because everybody has their own thing. Every house has their own mixer and hairbrush. And well, that's gross. But you know what I mean? You get the idea of what I'm talking about, right? The, the idea is that we're generous. We're generous. We are not supposed to say, these are my things, get your own things. I bought my stuff, you buy your stuff. I worked hard. Instead, unhypocritical love means that we're generous. Um, I want to, I as often as I can, when we talk about generosity, make sure that we're kind of all in the same kind of mindset um, to hear, because uh, still, as I have conversations, I'll hear this kind of said wrong. I need some drink. And it's coffee, so that's good. Um, whenever I grew up, I was kind of told that, listen, you're given 100% of your money by God. It's all, by God, all given to you from God. You're given, let's just use easy money, $100. You're given $100. And as you're given that $100, then you say, 10% is yours, nine, 10% is God's, 90% is yours. So you, you take $10, you give it to God, 90% is mine. I can do whatever I want. I can buy Nintendo games and, you know, I can go out to the arcade or whatever I'm doing. This is me back in the 80s. So, like, um, I can do whatever I want. This is mine. I can buy my CDs or whoever I want to listen to. I can buy gas, go to the movies, etc. Because I gave my 10% to God. That, that's not the way to think about this. As believers, when you're given $100, all $100 is God's. You give the ceiling, not the floor, not the ceiling. You give at least 10% to the Lord and then the other 90 or 85 or whatever, it's still God's. And you're supposed to be a good steward on how you spend that money too. So husbands, wives, college students, you still have to obviously eat, Husbands, take care of your wives. If you have children, buy beds for your children. You know, you don't want to make them sleep on the floor so you can be, God, look at me, I'm extra generous. I don't even let my kids sleep on beds. You know, like, so you use that money to, to take care of your family. But then you'll still have other things. And it's not like, oh, free money for me. No, you are responsible for, because all 100% is God's. You, you may give money to the church and feel like I can do whatever I want. No, You cannot. You don't get to take this other stuff and spend it on debauchery. All of it's God's and you steward it all. Yes, there are times where you can buy yourself a gift because me as a father likes to give gifts to my kids. Here, here's a bike and just enjoy it by riding a bike. So yes, you might buy yourself things and the Lord loves it when you have things, but all of it's not just for you. So you support missionaries or you meet your neighbor's needs with that, needs with that money or you meet your community group's needs with that money. You meet your, when you're, uh, across the street, neighbor has a baby. You make meals for him with that money. All of it's God's. You give to your local body, and the rest of it is still God's. It's not yours. It's, think of it this way you wouldn't have a penny if God didn't give it to you. you. You didn't earn your money. I can literally say you didn't build that. Like God did. It's all from Him. So. There was a a, a John Piper sermon. I don't know where it was. I tried to Google it and couldn't find it. But this is what he said. He said, when I get up into heaven one day um, and I stand before God and there's the homeless guy that kind of continually took me, you know, the, hom- the, the proverbial homeless guy who asks you for money. You don't want to give him money because you think he's just going to go get high on it or whatever or drink. And so you're like, well, let me take you to the subway and I'll just buy you the food. And you just, okay, I w- no pickles, extra onions. I've had that, like he, real specific. I'm like, that's awesome. Is that what you want. And so like you, after a while of kind of like giving the guy money because you don't have time, you realize he's, he's going to use it for whatever and you see him later and he's, he's spending it on you know, stuff that you don't want. You see him with the 40 or whatever and you're like, you know what? I'm not getting fooled anymore. And so Piper goes into the sermon. He goes, what are you gonna do when you stand before God? And you say, you know what, God? That guy, he fooled me once, but that's it. He didn't fool me anymore. What's God gonna say? Like, good job. He didn't fool you anymore. Well done. Like he said, I, I don't think that's the case. Instead, when I'm standing there, you say, Every time he asked, I gave him something, God. Because I was hoping that that would be the time as I met his need and I got to share the gospel. You would open up his heart. Obviously, there's wisdom and discernment on how you do it. But never bring yourself to the person that seemingly is always draining, always draining to say, you no longer get my generosity. When has God ever done that to you? Never. Overflows with generosity to you. So as much as we can, unhypocritical love is generous unhypocritical love is generous because everything you have and everything I have is God's next one. Second half of verse 13 contribute to the needs of saints and then it says seek to show hospitality now if we're in context hospitality is being offered to saints so it's in context seek to show hospitality to Christians not to the exclusion of non-Christians again same thing obviously. So, unhypocritical love is hospitable. Now, especially 2,000 years ago, whenever they were going, you know, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem or whatever, they didn't you know, hop on Marriott.com and, and book the inn and get there. Uh, they didn't have that. And generally when you arrived in cities, inns were unsavory, non-safe places anyway. And so, as a Christian, when you went to a city, you would hopefully find other Christians who presumably would be safe people to stay with. Um, and and he's saying, you're going to have lots of strangers coming to you. And as a Christian, unhypocritical love means that you're going to show them hospitality to strangers and allow them into your home. You're going to um, give them a place to stay. Now, if you notice here, it says, seek to show hospitality. This, this word there, is, it, it can make us think that Paul's just kind of suggesting that if passively opportunities for hop, uh, being hospitable come to your attention that you should just practice hospitality. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying pursue. This seek to show is pursue hospitality. I, I, I'll go ahead and jump ahead and give you the level of uh, pursuing that you should be seeking. If you look in the verse right below this in verse uh, 14, where it says, well, 13 says seek to show If you look in verse 42, is bless those who persecute, seek to show and persecute, same word, same Greek word. So if someone's going to be a persecutor, generally they're not half-hearted persecutors. They are full-on, gung-ho, kill-em-all persecutors. And he says, with that same intensity and that same level of persecution that they participate when they hurt people, that's the full-on level of persecution all-out pursuit of hospitality that you're supposed to have. So it's not just passively sit by and see if hospitality rolls your way. It's pursue hospitality. Obviously, in context, it says to Christians, although I don't necessarily mean that. think that it means just to Christians. I'm going to read a quote by Origen. He lived right there at the turn of the first and the second century regarding this. I'm only going to read it once because my heart can only handle it. The, the, the amount of, um, the amount of like feeling I get, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't feel think of the word. Conviction. The amount of conviction I get. I'm sorry. Usually it's not that bad. Anyway, it, it, it's pretty strong. And I think that we're all going to get it. This is amazing. This is amazingly convicting. We are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after him or her and look carefully for strangers, to pursue them and search out for them everywhere, lest perchance somewhere in my city there may sit in the streets or lie lie in my my city a, a homeless man without a roof over his heads tonight. That's what he says in regard to unhypocritical love pursues hospitality. I can't read any more because it's so convicting. But that's what it's supposed to look like. So let me just ask this one question. Is pursuing hospitality like that even on our radar screen? Man, that's tough. But that's what we're supposed to do. Unhypocritical love looks like that. Verse 14, really straightforward. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is tough as well. Persecute, like I said, is just like, as it says, pursue or seek to show hospitality. It's strong. It's a strong level that people give to you. And we are, the necessary challenge here is for those that seek to persecute us, we are supposed to literally bless them. This means that those that seek to harm you or hurt you, that you're literally supposed to wish good health upon them. Pray for that. You're asking God to bestow favor on the people that try to persecute you. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44, best sermon in the world. Jesus preached it. He says this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you're literally... An unhypocritical love means that you are blessing givers to those who persecute you. You're not just kind of in mid-range, like they persecute me, I don't hate them because I'm not supposed to. Instead, it's God bless them, give them favor, give them health, bring wealth to them, take care of them, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This means that Paul is, with all sincerity, with single-mindedness of this unhypocritical loving attitude that we're supposed to have, calling us to be blessing givers to everyone, not just the easy people, but to those that would persecute you. Next one, verse 15. This is another place where he commands a feeling. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. So, and a little bit of difference from the one where he commands us to be zealous in good works to have life and be passionate about good works here he commands us to be emotion filled just in everyday life as we're hanging out with people so when people says man you're just being emotional like that's a negative thing that's actually good this is what he's telling you be emotional Be emotionally present and involved with people. Literally, if people are rejoicing, rejoice with them. If people are weeping, weep with them. Stott, I think, sums this this command up the best, where he says, love or unhypocritical love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them, sings with them, suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears and feels solidarity with them. Now I was not taught how to do this at a young age at all. So it, it does this does not come naturally to me whatsoever. I'm generally was raised with don't get too involved. So this is very difficult for me. But um, I actually feel more competent at standing aloof than entering into people's lives. I feel much more confident at that, which is a bad thing. But as a pastor, um, I've learned the secret to this. Being in ministry now for, I don't know, 20 something years, here's the trick as a pastor. You, you just do it. That's it. There's no magic bullet. You just walk in. You go. You enter into their joy or pain. You take deep care for them and you learn from what's going on and you feel with them and it just you just learn it because you're a human wired with emotions and i promise you it will happen so let's say it this way genuine unhypocritical genuine love just remember this genuine love enters genuine love enters it enters into people's experiences It puts others first and genuine love acts first. It enters into their experience. Genuine love enters into their joy. Genuine love enters into their pain. It doesn't stand outside the door and kind of look in the window and say, I'm hoping that's going well. It walks through the door. It enters in no matter what's going on. Unhypocritical love enters into people's lives. Unhypocritical love, genuine love, it enters. So are you standing aloof? Are you entering in? Are you keeping your own heart closed and shut and not let any people enter into you? We're called here to be emotion-filled. And the only way we're going to do that, unhypocritical love, unhypocritical love, is emotion-filled. The only way that's going to happen is if you're going to enter into people's lives. We've already quoted Lewis, at the risk of being hurt or broken. Next one, 16A. This is going to go fast, I promise. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony. Literally, this is think the same thing towards one another. Be of same mind or live in agreement with one another. So it doesn't tell us to live in melody with one another. It doesn't tell us to sing the same note with each other. It tells us to sing two notes that that when sung together sound beautiful. If you live in harmony with one another. So it's saying, don't think the same thing on every issue, but because of love for one another, think the same thing towards one another. We may disagree, but the same thing I have towards you is what you have towards me. I'm going to live in harmony with you. Unhypocritical love is harmonious. They have a love towards each other. This is only done with our mind. This can only be done with our mind. That's why the most famous verse in, in Romans chapter 12 is 1 and 2, where it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, that's an oxymoron. I mean, pretty much the only distinction about being a sacrifice is that it's dead. And it says to be a living sacrifice, like jumbo shrimp. It's, a, it's an oxymoron. Living sacrifice. And so he's saying, in order for you to come and offer your body based on the mercies of God, chapters 1 through 11, based on all that mercy in the gospel, you come now and offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That means I'm counting myself dead, and now I'm going to live. And so all the things I'm going to do living, I'm going to live for God. I am sacrificed. God gets his way. I'm going to offer myself as a living sacrifice, and that's holy and acceptable God which is your spiritual worship. That, that's not proskuneo, come forward and bow down. That's lachiro, lifestyle living of worship. It's my lifestyle worship to be the kind of person that has a living sacrifice. How do I do that? Here it is. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't look like the world, but be transformed by the renewal of my mind. And as I do that, I can test them to see what's the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So as we see over here, we're taught to live in harmony with one another this all comes from a renewed mind a renewed mind constantly being shaped by the agape love of Christ that's how we're going to think the same thing towards one another and live in harmony with one another so how can you live let's just apply this to your marriage your community group just those two little groups that maybe most of you are in how can you live in a common loving mindset with your community group What does it look like for you to have harmony in your community group? We've already talked. It means for sure margin that you're consistently there and concerned. But what does that look like? As you might all have kind of disagreeing things on some issues here and there, but you're still going to live in harmony. Last one, the end of verse 16. Do not be haughty, But associate with the lowly, never be conceited. This is just practicing humility, being humble. Unhypocritical love is humble. It's humble. And when it says to associate with the lowly, you don't need to think of that as just people. Associating with the lowly can also be tasks. There's no task too low that I won't go do. Taking out the garbage, sweeping the floor of the homeless shelter, Staying late for my community leader and washing all his dishes. Going over to my next door neighbor's house and cutting their grass. Taking up my time. There's no no task that's too lowly. But there's no person either. Oh, that person. This verse is Paul's plea with Christians not to be snobs. Don't be a Christian snob. Those two words shouldn't even ever be together. There's no such thing as a Christian snob. There's just snobs. Unhypocritical love is humble. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Literally what Jesus did, where he came and associated with the lowly because he came down to us to live with us. Christians aren't supposed to care about status. John Stott looks at this and says, Jesus fraternized freely and naturally with social rejects. Take heart, you and I are social rejects. Jesus freely fraternized and naturally with social rejects and calls his followers to do the same with equal freedom and naturalness. You are free to be as humble as possible and associate with the lowly. Now, last thing I need to say about this association with the lowly where it says, associate, that means be true friends. It's not like, hey, I'm going to bless you with my presence, oh lowly one. Here I am. I'm all here. No. This is... Real friendship. And it's not conceited. It's not It's not conceited. So, you're not condescending to them. Your mindset should never be one of condescension. No matter who they are, from the most important person in the city to the seemingly least important person in the city. Whoever you are, I'm going to come over to you, no matter who you are, and doesn't feel like I'm condescending or ascending or condescending to you. We're on the same level and I'm going to make a real friendship with you. I'm not giving you my time because I'm so awesome. Instead, you're a person made in the image of God just like me and unhypocritical love is humble to come alongside whoever you are and be your friend. Go places with you. Know your interests. Buy you uh, breakfast or birthday presents. Like Be a real friend. Talk about Jesus with them. So dream with me now. What Unhypocritical love might look like in your community group if you had these things? In your marriage, in your church. Because the church is the people, not the building. What would your group or your community look like if you were humble? You lived in harmony. You were emotion-filled about others' things in their lives. You were a blessing giver to everyone. You were hospitable. You were generous. You patiently endured. Willing to give your heart over even if it means being broken. You were passionate, continually passionate about good words, good works. You were honoring to others. You literally counted others as more significant than your own self. You were consistently concerned about your brothers and sisters. And because of this unhypocritical love that's been given to you, you're discerning. The things that are evil, I loathe them and I don't want them around me in my own life and in the lives of others and I'm willing to go tell them and those that are believers and those things that are good, we're going to hold fast to those things. What would it look like? How different would your church change? How different would your community change? Let's ask the Lord to make these things present in our lives and I need to read it one more time again, these are not things you have to do in order to finally make God love you These are things because of the love of God that's already been given to you in the gospel, because you are completely justified and innocent that now you get to do as a daughter of the king, as a son of the king. And if you fail miserably at these, nothing changes that good news. You just continually strive in getting to live a life that pursues these things. This is unhypocritical sincere love that's been given to us is being expressed through us to other people and you and I are going to blow it big time at doing these things well but the gospel is that that's already forgiven and you march forward continually in the salvation that's been given to you we're going to sing and I just invite you to worship your Jesus worship Christ because of this let's pray Jesus thank you for this time I pray that you would be with us now as we worship. God, we, we need your presence daily in our lives, and we thank you that you are here with us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.